turn to the book of Ephesians and chapter 5 this evening. Ephesians chapter 5 in our Bibles. And for those that may not have been with us on recent Sunday evenings, we've been in an extended series um, trying to articulate and lay the foundation for what we've articulated in terms of a philosophy of church ministry. And we've tried to first explore what the God-ordained destination is for every church. Why uh, did God bring the local church into existence? What is God's purpose for every church? And then we've been trying to establish some guideposts and checkpoints that can help us uh, along the way to that God-ordained destination. And when we started that whole series, we started right here in the book of Ephesians. We tried to review that recently uh, for the development that we're, that we're in now in recent weeks. And what we reviewed again recently is that in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we find a record of what God the Father is doing. He is doing by Christ. And what God the Father is doing by Christ, he is doing through the church. He ordained his son to be the head over his body, which is the church. So what God the Father is doing, he's doing by Christ. He's doing through the church. And he's doing, remember, for one repeatedly stated ultimate purpose. And that is that we should be to the praise of his glory. That we should... Be a, a radiant outshining of the unique excellence of our God. That others should be able to, like a telescope lens, remember that, that uh, fixes on a planet that seems small because there's so much distance involved. To fix on uh, the, the typical person of our day thinks of God as relatively small. I mean, if he exists, what impact does it have on my life? And and through the lens of the church and <clears throat> the lives that make up a church, people are able, are, are, God is determined that people should be able to see something of his magnificence and some of the particular attributes of, of his character. And so that's chapters 1 through 3. And chapter 4 then begins with an exhortation to walk worthy of that. What kind of conduct on our part contributes to God being glorified? And we are still in that section when we get down here to chapter 5 and verse 18, where we are exhorted to not be drunk with wine, uh, because it leads to excessive living is the idea of that phrase, <clears throat> but be yielded increasingly to the influence of the Spirit of God. And when that happens, that will be seen in a number of arenas of life. But in particular, there's a focus on the family. There are 14 straight verses that address the influence of the Spirit in family relationships. Verse 22, <coughs> excuse me, it's the activity of wives under discussion there. Verse 25, you can see the first word is husbands. And then as you continue down into chapter 6, you can see the first word of verse 1 is children. And then in verse 4, right away again, Angie, fathers. And, and so marriage and the family, as Paul 
addressed it under the inspiration of the Spirit is, first of all, a matter of conduct that contributes to the glorification of God. And the kind of conduct in our marriages and in the parent-child relationship that is going to glorify God is going to take the influence and the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And I've returned to that again this evening and probably will each of the services uh, that we give our attention to this theme because we need to be reminded, in particular tonight as we're looking at marriage, we need to be reminded that considering what God has to say about our marriages is not a seminar on how to have a happier home. Um, we, We need to be reminded that this teaching is here not for us to be happy, but for God to be glorified. Our happiness would really be a byproduct of staying God-centered and influenced and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we also need to to preface some of this as we launch into it, because no spouse should look at a passage like this as a prescription of what my spouse owes me. This is really one of the dangers of doing marital counseling together with a couple, and that is both of them sitting there is again i mentioned this before but you 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 exhort the wife and the husband's listening for what the wife is supposed to be doing and she's not doing and 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 you're you're exhorting the husband and the wife is sitting there if i had a husband that was half of that you know what i could be as a christian and and when that kind of thing takes over right uh, you just keep digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper and that obviously can be the danger then in preaching. Now, all of us all together is pointing a finger at others and, you know, what they are not doing in terms of their relationship to me. But what I need to be doing is I need to be listening carefully to what God has to say about me, whatever part of the family unit I'm in. What does God have to say about, about my role and obligations in the home I'm listening because I want to contribute to the glorification of God, right? That's the backtrack to all of this. And, <clears throat> and with that said tonight, we want to return to a consideration of the activity on the part of a husband in relationship to his wife that glorifies God. Last week, we just followed the flow of the text that started with the wives. <clears throat> tonight, the husbands. And um, I want you to know that, um, that my wife gave a ringing endorsement today. She said, I can't wait to hear you preach to yourself. And then she said, you're the best husband I've ever had. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know what? We're in it together, aren't we? And no one's arrived. And what we want to see is, really, we want to continue to raise the ideal and we want to say, Lord, continue by your spirit to just take over more and more and more of me. And may you be seen more and more. I do want to begin tonight by relating the testimony of a man who uh, became a well-known marriage counselor. But by his own admission, he entered into marriage with a great deal to learn. I'm, I'm going to quote an extended part of a story from him. But he wrote, it was 4 p.m. on Valentine's Day when I remembered my basketball game. I reached for the phone to call Norma, my bride of less than a year. Honey, I forgot to tell you I have a basketball game tonight. We're supposed to be there at 7 p.m. I'll pick you up at 6.30. Silence hung heavily on the line. 
Before she answered, but this is Valentine's Day. Yeah, I know, but I need to be there tonight because I promised the team I don't want to let them down. But I have a special dinner prepared with candles and... Can't you hold off until tomorrow? <clears throat> she didn't answer, so I continued. And in parentheses, he says, What I was about to say caused a great deal of damage in our relationship. Like many young husbands, I didn't have the slightest idea of how deeply this would wound her. I continued, Honey, you know how important it is for a wife to submit to her husband. I really need to be there tonight, and we're hoping to start off the marriage with good habits. Now's the time to begin. If I'm going to be the leader of this family, I need to make the decision. Ice, he said, perfectly describes the reception. When I picked her up, it was easy to see I had severely hurt her. But I figured she has to learn submission sometime, and we might as well start now. The lifeless expression on her face grew worse as the evening wore on. When we returned home after the game, I noticed the table was all set up for a special dinner. Candles, our best dishes, pretty napkins. She still wasn't speaking to me the next day. So I rushed to the florist to gather a variety of flowers, which I put in various spots all over the house. That warmed her up a little. Then I gave her a giant card with a hand on the front that could be turned thumbs up or thumbs down. Which is it? I asked her. She turned it thumbs up. I never said whether I was right or wrong, only that I felt badly about the night before. And then he went on, and so began a history of offenses I never knew how to really clear up with her. And then as we turn our attention to the positive statement of conduct that glorifies God, verse number 25, in verse number 25, the repeatedly Stated one word, God given responsibility of a husband to a wife is what? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Look at verse 28. Sought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. This clearly is our God given responsibility. And we could spend a great deal of time we have in the past in a, di in a different series considering uh, some of the words that the Greeks used in this day for love. The word that is the husband's responsibility to his wife before God is the word agape. This is agape love. This is obviously greater than eros, which is a term that they use to describe Something that was basically stirred up by the eyes. This is the quote-unquote love at first sight. But in that day, eros really was more of a self-serving passion for romance. What I can get out of that whole dynamic. Agape is certainly greater than that. The Bible actually warns about that as, as a characteristic, actually, of a strange woman in Proverbs. But it's even, it's not only greater than eros, it's even greater than the warm tenderness of Philos. Uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And, and philos is the kind of thing that you would say, my good friend, my dear friend. There, there's tender affection in that. There's kindness in that. There's warmth in that. 
And that's a term the Bible does commend to us, but agape actually goes beyond that. And it goes as well beyond another expression that the Greeks used, which was storge. And that's a love that was really kind of a family love. It's the kind of love that parents have for grand, uh, grandparents have for grandchildren, right? And, and, and hopefully and it, it's natural for parents, of course, to have that for their children. All these, the, the love that is between family. But agape goes even beyond that. It's a love that, right here in the verse, the next expression indicates, it, it begins with and is defined by Christ. Notice, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and then what? And gave himself. Agape love, as is seen in Christ, is a love that gives. It's a love that gives, at times at least, at significant cost. How do we perceive the love of God for us? 1 John 3.16 Hereby perceive we the love of God for us because he laid down what? He laid down his life for us. It gives, it gives at significant cost. And if we could explore the, the term even more, it gives to meet real needs. Even when the object of, of the love isn't all that lovely, perhaps. Think about this, for scarcely for a righteous man would some die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's a copy love. Husbands, love your wives and and i know that there there's not a man here that doesn't think he doesn't love his wife but husbands love your wives as christ loved and gave and gave at cost gave sacrificially gave to meet real needs gave <clears throat> even when the object isn't always that lovely. But give as Christ gives, and Christ loves. And this love of Christ for the church is not just sacrificial, but notice that it is also purposeful. We have verse 25, give like Christ gave. Then verse 26, that... And again, verse 27, that. So give as Christ did with a particular purpose in mind. And, and the purpose in verse 26 is that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Continuing on into verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Men, give sacrificially, but give for the purpose 
of seeing really our wives grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, see them grow in sanctification and see them be all that our God would want them to be. Give with the vision that God has for our wives to grow and to develop and, and be all that he would have them to be. And, and I'm going to pause to settle into a couple aspects of application even be, before moving on here and, and even kind of back up in our thinking just a little bit. Men, if you have ever said, I wish my wife was more whatever. I mean, just fill in the blank. If you've ever said, I wish my wife was more, if what you'd fill in is wholesome at all, right? Then it will be accomplished through the means of a husband's sacrificial giving. That's the flow here. Love as Christ loved and gave, and he did it so that change would take place. More and more in his bride. <clears throat> Men, if you, you say, I'd like my wife to be more of this, all right, that's going to involve giving and sacrificial giving on our parts to be an instrument to that end. And in the flow of the passage, you can't miss the fact that, that God has then designed the husband <clears throat> to, to use the husband in the development of, of the wife being all that Christ wants wants her to be. <clears throat> Minister in such a way that our wives stand before our Lord someday without spot and without wrinkle, free from defilement and deformity. He wants us to minister in such a way that they are holy and they are without blemish. And I heard on several occasions I was assistant under Dr. Wayne Big Elder Jr., but I heard of him talking about walking out of um, a hospital in Chicago with his dad, and then one year I had the opportunity, because some of our folks in Milwaukee had been injured uh, in, a, in a wreck south of Chicago, they got transported to the very hospital where Pastor uh, Wayne Geldren's mom had been, and, and I got to be at that hospital, and I happened to be walking out with him after we had gone to visit somebody, and we were in a corridor, and he stopped me, and he said, this, this place right here in this corridor is where my dad had the conversation with me you probably heard me mention. And, and what had happened was he was walking out of that hospital when, when and the doctors had just told them that Mrs. Van Gelderen Sr. was terminally ill with cancer and she didn't have long to live. And as they were walking out, Dad stopped Son and said, Son, you have a wonderful mother, but she's not ready to meet the Lord. I've got more work to do. Would you pray with me? that God will give me at least several more years with her so that I can accomplish more of the job that he gave me to do. And as I recall the story, it seems like that God gave them the years that he asked for, plus two. 
And Mrs. Big Eldridge Sr., though she was not perfect, was really known for her godliness. But I'm mentioning that tonight because this was a husband that, to some degree, had really gotten a hold of his purpose of his loving ministry to his wife. The purpose was really about the work of Christ in his wife. And the purpose was about the glory of God through his wife's life. And the husband caught that. And my ministry to my wife is to see her become all that God would have her to be. And when a man commits himself to that end, there has to be a very purposeful commitment to, to bathing. I mean, you have this idea in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with, with the washing of water by the word. It's like bathing it in the water. But in this case, the instrument of doing that is the word. Men, we're responsible that our wives live and operate in an atmosphere that is saturated with the words of God. Because that's the instrument of, of Christian growth. And what that means for all of us is, is that that cannot happen without us having a personal, thriving relationship to the word on our own part. There just will not be strength to to follow through and conviction, to commend this to our wives without our own attachment to the word. And really what every home desperately needs is a man that has learned to influence others through giving himself and making a word-filled life and a word-filled environment the priority of his life. This will be an evidence of, of the Spirit of God at work. And a man learning what it is to love. Now, with that high ideal in mind, and, and we, we could camp here in some respects and extend out the applications, and they'd be wonderful. And in some ways, uh, in, in the past, years in the past, I thought this was, this was really kind of the apex. And it almost takes a step down from here. It almost seemed a little anticlimactic. Until I had opportunity to learn... Uh, and just be challenged what's really going on in the next verse. And all of a sudden it just kept going up. Look at verse 28. Ephesians 5 and verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And, th and you can see what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. If, at, at first glance it could be love like Christ. That's the ideal. And then love as their own body. And that's a major step down. It, it could seem like, you know, we're at, we're at totally different concepts. Now, I would just say with, with this perspective in mind, you know, love like you love yourself kind of thing, okay? Applications tend to gravitate towards you, you men take care to groom yourself and feed yourself and, and give yourself comforts and and you should make sure you do the same for your wife. You know, make sure you give her money for clothes and cosmetics and provide food for the family. And, you know, let her have some of the furniture in the house. And after all, you spend money and time on, on your own hobbies and so on. And, and that may very well be challenging. But it's not elevated enough for what's going on here. You can notice, again, that the first word of verse 28 is the word so... And, and, and that's just connecting us back into the preceding verses. So 
what it is saying is that loving your wife as your body is not new. It's a continuation of actually what it would mean for Christ to love the church. Now, now follow this. And, and, and what I'm about to say, you already know. But you might not have made this particular connection. When Christ gave himself for the church, there is a sense in which he gave himself for his bride, but there's also a sense in which he gave himself for his, for his body. Right? Look down at verse 30. We're going to come back to verse 29 in between. But Ephesians 5.30 says, For we are members of his what? We're members of his body. Um, you could flip back to chapter 1 and uh, just look at verses 22 and 23. Again, it's talking about the Father hath put all things under the Son's feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his what? Okay, the church is his body. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body of the church. Now, with those references in mind, if I ask you this, is the church the bride of Christ or the body of Christ? And the answer is both. The church is the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. So, brethren, when it comes to Christ and his bride and Christ and his body, we're not talking about two separate entities. There is a unity there. The bride is his what? The bride is his body. Now we're supposed to make the transfer, really, that the text is drawing attention to. When Christ gave himself for his bride, he's giving himself for his body. So, verse 28, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. So, don't think of your wife as something distinct from your body. Think of your wife as your body. Think of your wife, if I, if I can say it this way, think of your wife as, as being in union with yourself in such a way that to love her is to love who? It is to love yourself. And that's actually what the next phrase of verse 28 says. If you're thinking, boy, that's crazy. He that loveth his wife does love who? He does love himself. It's coming back around to say, when God brings male and female together in the marriage relationship to become what? They become one. And somebody could say, oh, Pastor, I just can't get my mind around the concept that my wife can be my wife and she can be me at the same time. Okay, well, with verse 32, Paul indicates this is a great what? Okay, there's some difficulty here. But, back up to verse 31. He can also argue this isn't coming up with something new. Verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. I mean, you can go all the way back 
to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. This has been God's standard from the beginning, that a man regards his wife as being one with himself so that any thought of caring for himself would involve caring for his wife. This means, brethren, that we can't ever sit back and say, well, my wife is just struggling with this, and she's struggling with that, and she... But you know what? My wife is going to be my wife, and whatever her problems are are her problems. That's not love. That's not Christ. If, if my wife has a need, whose need is that? That's my need. <clears throat> um, if, I'm going to, if I'm going to say, well, <clears throat> you know what? I'm just going to I'm have to deal with myself. And, no. If, if I really am going to do anything that is to the good of myself, it's ultimately going to be to the good of my wife. That's how the Bible makes the connection. And it makes it, I say again, from Genesis right through the New Testament and the relationship between Christ and and the church. Now, when Paul explains that a man should love his wife as if she's his body, he does assume some things about the natural course of, of affairs. Look at verse 29. He says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Right? And that, that statement that a man doesn't hate his flesh doesn't mean that a, you know, that, a, that a man loves everything about his physique. Yeah, you don't have to love your big nose or you know, this mark or your ears or your, you know, your balding head. I could go on, but I'm going to stop there on my own case. Okay? Um, that's not what it's talking about. What it is saying is this. It's completely unnatural for a man to knowingly injure himself and knowingly hurt himself. Okay. Now, there are men, of course, that are not in their right mind who take those kind of actions. But, but the whole point is a man who's in his right mind doesn't knowingly hurt himself. Even if a man is willing to, you know, work through a fair amount of pain, at some point he backs off. He takes some Tylenol, he takes a day off, goes on vacation, sees a doctor. He, you know, he gets a different job. He figures out some way to not just keep pummeling himself and bringing pain. What a man just naturally does can be described in the words nourish and cherish. And the word that is translated nourish it's found in only one other occasion in the Bible, and for me, it's right across the page. Look at chapter 6, and look at verse 4. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, our word nourish is in that verse. If you haven't marked it before, I'm not sure you'd get it at first glance. I, I had thought, when somebody said it, that it was probably the word nurture. But it is not. It's actually the word that's in the phrase, bring them up. So no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it. That's the same word 
that is translated in the phrase, bring them up. Now, what, what's the point of that? To bring something up is to help it, what? Help it grow. It's to help it move from one stage to another in a healthy fashion. Do, do our marriages go through different stages? Does, does, do wives go through different stages and seasons? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big difference between a, a newly married wife. And, you know, the Bible says in the Old Testament that a man in Israel was not to go off to war the first year of his marriage. It actually says, stay at home with your crying wife. <laughs> She's going to wake up to what she married in us. And it's going to need special care. There's the years before children. There's the years of young children. There's the years of, of, of the growing children. There's the years of the children starting to leave the nest. There's the years after that. And, and, and all along the way, God intends for there to be a husband that is invested in helping his wife grow and i'm not just talking about the seasons related to us and to children but all the things that go on in the whole in the whole complex of the physiological and social relational all of that and as we think about this there really is something wrong with us men here's the issue there's something wrong with us when wives that used to have spirits that were vital and lively and energetic and, and happy and they were full of goals and, and they are just barely hanging on. And, and some men do let their physical bodies get to that point. In those cases, it's probably more a, a lack of discipline, a lack of just care for, for what the, the body that the Lord's given us to use for him. But, but when a man lets his wife get to that point, it is a reflection of lack of love for her and lack of love for the Lord who gave us to minister to her. And ultimately, brethren, it's a lack of passion for the glory of God. Again, which is the backdrop to this entire context. And when men see it to see to it that our bodies are, are cared for, that so that they grow properly. Again, they we we naturally do it in a way that is characterized in this next word to cherish. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and now cherisheth it. That term is used, in, again, in only one other place in the Scripture. And I want to have us turn. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and the word's going to be used in 1 Thessalonians 2 in verse 7. But I want us to, I want us to start back in to verse 6. So that we get a, a bit of the flow. Paul had landed in Thessalonica as a visiting minister. He points out what he did. 
And in verse 6, he said, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. And so you can see that he just, he, he denies that he ever used, think about this, he denies that he ever used his status as an apostle to be overbearing or heavy-handed and, and just taxing on the people. But instead he did this in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So instead of heavy-handed and overbearing and taxing, the picture here is of just the kind of tender care a mother, a nurse gives to a child. And this is the way that men we are to approach moving our wives forward in the various stages of life. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And when we get challenged to that end, notice again in verse 29, No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, we're reminded now on the other end, even as the what? Even as the Lord, the church. This is the way the Lord ministers to the church because, verse 30, we are members of his body. And once again, calling for the man to approach his, his wife in this manner is nothing new. Verse 32, it is a great mystery, but... <clears throat> Um, this, I'm sorry, verse 31, this is the way it's been from the beginning. And verse 32, it may seem like a mystery, but verse 33, so let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. Amen. It is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to, to plumb the depths of the mystery. And to do it day after day, year after year, to learn more of what it is to love our lives like Christ loved the church, which is his body. We, we need to learn more of what that is. We need to learn more and more of what's going on in our wives' lives and what's impacting them and what can help and what hinders, what makes it hard and taxing and what can, can be part of... of, of Helping them move forward. Uh, sometimes men say things like, well, I'll never understand women. That may be the case for women in general. But 1 Peter 3 says to men, dwell with them according to what? To knowledge. There is one woman that we ought to master getting to know. And know how to minister to that one. And know what it is to sacrificially give of ourselves. What, what the purpose of seeing them be all that, that Christ wants them to be. I am repeatedly challenged by the story some of you have read of Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia Bible Institute and Seminary back in the 1980s when his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he continued his ministry and cared for his wife 
for a number of years until the disease progressed to the point that he couldn't do both. And at some point, there were well, well-meaning brethren that encouraged him to actually go ahead and, and get his wife set up in, in an institution that specialized for um, the care of, of those kind of patients, Alzheimer's, as they progressed. And, and there were actually some scriptural texts that were suggested to him that, that seemed to kind of call for that kind of step. But instead of that, he actually resigned his position. And I do want to read some of his reasoning. It was, I'm quoting from his resignation letter. He said, my dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far I've been able to care for both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities. But recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. And it's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me, always goes in search of me when I leave home. She may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. It is clear that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. There is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of the wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit, tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing situation. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. And that, that's not just chivalry. That's somebody who over the years has just continued to learn what it is to be a recipient of God's love to him in Christ. And then recognize that that standard is to be seen in me. Uh, as I give sacrificially to meet needs and, and help to grow and, 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 and help to move through the seasons of life. And here's, here's the most difficult of all. But now more than ever I get to love. That, that was the heartbeat. That's somebody who is really recognizing this is about Christ being seen and God being glorified. And we're going to stop here tonight. Men, it's our responsibility to plumb the depths of the love of Christ and to get to really know our wives and then see, even in their weakest times, the greatest opportunity to display Christ for the glory of God. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And